Hey everyone, what you're about to listen to is an interview I performed with Dave Holland from the YouTube channel Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield. Dave is by far the greatest expert I have ever met on anything having to do with the battles performed on Guadalcanal. His YouTube channel is one of the most interesting and original channels you ever find. He doesn't just give you the history of the battles, like let's say the Battle upon Edson's Ridge, also known as the Battle of Bloody Ridge. He actually ventures to the place it occurred. This is because he spent many years doing tours on Guadalcanal, and he himself was a former United States Marine. So I can't stress enough, please go check out his channel and show him some love. This podcast is going to be on many of the Medal of Honors earned on Guadalcanal. Again, if you go over to my YouTube channel, each one of the people we're going to be speaking about will have a unique episode dedicated to them, and it'll have visuals, combat footage, even cinematic footage from some movies like The Thin Red Line or The Pacific series. So please, if you have a chance, go check it out. It means a lot to me. But without further ado, here is Dave Holland. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, where we cover the entire Pacific War from 1937 all the way up to 1945. And I'm joined here today by my guest. It's Dave Holland from Walking the Battlefield, Guadalcanal. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good, Craig. Um, thanks again for um, having me on. So it's a pleasure and honor. And I'm doing well today in um, freezing Australia, which a lot of people don't realize. And we were discussing beforehand in Canberra. Yeah. Seasons are reverse. So it's freezing in August. <laughs> Topsy turvy. Canadian over here is in the biggest heat wave we've seen in a long time. And you're freezing over there in Australia. Crazy yeah. world. And uh, I think this is pretty much one of the most interesting episodes that'll be done in the Pacific War. I don't think I've seen anybody on YouTube cover the, all the Medal of Honors, especially for Guadalcanal. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the biggest ones. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, um, I've been doing a lot of research involving the Medal of Honors on Guadalcanal for a long time, and um, I'm just waiting to put some product out. It took me, as you know, I think we previously discussed, I lived in Guadalcanal uh, for two years straight and then uh, total for three years on um, small trips then and there. And one of my goals was to locate every land uh, Medal of Honor site. It's a bit difficult locating the sea and air ones. Uh, there was a number of Medal of Honors uh, earned on Guadalcanal. Officially, there's 22. Yeah. Um, but and during my course of travels and, and walking and uh, a lot of research, uh, lots of research, um, I've located every one of the land Medal of Honor sites. So I thought I would love to, to share this uh, experience and um, information that I've, I gathered. And I hope for my audience at the end of however all of these videos are going to be cut up, I'm going to try and add links to his content so that you can actually see some of the locations in Guadalcanal that you have walked upon and find the actual spots that they were receiving these medals for the actions that they did. It's going to be quite exciting to go through this long list of them. And uh, well, on the uh, well, the beginning, I think you wanted to say a little bit about Vandegrift. Oh yeah, so um, uh, General uh, Major General uh, Archer Vandegrift, um, Archibald or Archer Vandegrift, as he was known, was the um, commanding general of the First Marine Division. Um, now Vandegrift actually received the Medal of Honor uh, on Guadalcanal, but he was the only one that didn't receive it for any specific actions. He um, he received the Medal of Honor. For his overall contribution to the campaign, <clears throat> that was kind of I wouldn't say kind of common, but it was common, especially in the early years of the war, um, for a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is to um, promote morale amongst the population 
And um, because it was a success story, Guadalcanal, as you know, was the first really um, time the, the Pacific um, strategic shift in the initiative. And, and Archer Vandegrift was a key component of that. So um, he was the only one that didn't really have a specific action, but all the other ones did. So I'm not going to spend too much time on, on Vandegrift, just in other than his um, overall contribution to the campaign. But there was 22 land or there's 22 Medal of Honors total, like I mentioned before. Uh, Ten of them um, were um, on land. One I consider a hybrid Medal of Honor, and that's the Douglas Monroe, the only U.S. Coast Guardman to earn a Medal of Honor in yeah. history. Um, I don't consider Monroe a sea Medal of Honor. I consider him a land Medal of Honor. So we'll discuss uh, Monroe on the channel because technically he was in the ocean on a landing craft, and it was only uh, about 150 meters off the coast in support of a, a direct support of a land operation. So he was uh, part of the Marines, so to speak, and they adopted him. So I've included him in Land Medal of Honors. Uh, I'm not going to cover the uh, Naval Medal of Honors or the Air Medal of Honors. There were a number of them, too. Um, that might be in a separate uh, podcast or separate show. Yeah. So we're just going to concentrate on Land Medal of Honors. Yeah. And we got two big ones at the very beginning, Edson and Bailey. One of the most notorious battles. Yeah, so the, the first two we can cover, I'll, I'll, I'll combine those two guys. So it's um, uh, Red Mike Edson. Who, uh, his nickname is Red Mike. So Mike Edson and um, <clears throat> Ken Bailey. So they were the, at the time, Edson was the commander of the 1st Raider Battalion, and he also had the 1st Parachute Battalion attached to them. Um, so he earned his Medal of Honor along with Bailey at the Battle of uh, Edson's Ridge or Bloody Ridge, as it's known. Um, basically, the fault between the um, dates of the 12th and the uh, 14th and 15th, depends on who you speak to, of September 1942. Um, <clears throat> I've covered it on, on my show and a number of other uh, shows, the Battle of Bloody Ridge, so I won't go into the history of Bloody Ridge, but what Edson did, Bailey at the time, uh, I'll, I'll talk about Edson first. So Edson um, was basically a, um, a very aggressive leader. He, um, he always led by example, like a lot of these Marine officers did. And um, what Bailey did on the first night, he, he um, I'll, I'll put it back. Bailey, Bailey actually set up his battalion on Bloody Ridge, right? Because he knew the Japanese were probably going to attack from that direction. So Kawaguchi was the Japanese commander with the 35th Brigade. They were come up from the south um, along Bloody Ridge. And if you look at a map of Bloody Ridge, it's basically uh, a linear uh, features straight to the airfield. It's only about the edge of the Bloody Ridge, the northern end of Bloody Ridge. is only about a thousand yards away from Henderson Airfield. Um, thick jungle surrounds it, or at the time it surrounded it, and the Japanese called the ridge the centipede because, from an aerial photograph, it looks like a centipede. And with the with the um, legs, is the spurs of the ridges going off. They call it the, the centipede. So Japanese aerial reconnaissance had picked up. Um, if they wanted to attack, especially if you're going to bring a Japanese units, uh, especially that large, three battalions, through the thick jungle at night, which the Japanese, uh, as you know, love to attack at night for the infiltration uh, techniques, that if they could hit that clear lineal um, terrain feature, they could just move very quickly and flood the airfield and overrun the airfield before the Marines could um, really have a chance to, to fight back. And at the time... Vandegrift only had a horseshoe-shaped uh, 
perimeter defense. He didn't have enough troops to man that southern line other than uh, combat patrols and outposts. So Edson had recognized that along with the chief of staff, General Thomas of the 1st Marine Division, that it would be a, um, a key avenue of approach. Vandergriff at the time had moved his headquarters, the 1st Marine Division headquarters, up on the ridge itself to avoid what the Marines referred to as the V-ring, which is the airfield when every day they would get hit daily by Japanese bombers. Yeah. And the V-ring um, during that era was the, the middle target of a Marine um, rifle target. It's a V-ring. So they considered themselves in the middle of the V-ring. It's not probably the best place to put a, a, a division headquarters. So it disrupted it. So he said, let's move up on the ridge to avoid the V-ring. But he basically put his division command post basically on the front line. Um, so Vandegar said, no, they're not going to attack. They knew the Japanese were there coming. They're going to attack on the, the west flank to replicate that 21 August uh, Battle of Alligator Creek. But Edson and from his reconnaissance and in part with the um, Solomon Island scouts, and some other reconnaissance and intelligence information they were receiving, they knew the Japanese were in the jungle, thousands of them. And he said, if I was a Japanese commander, I would attack there. So what Edson did, he, um, he between himself and the chief of staff, Thomas, they convinced Vandegrift, look, put us up on the ridge and we can rest. Knowing, or we can serve as also your division uh, bodyguard. We've been hit pretty hard for the past few weeks, so we need some rest. And that's why they sold it to the division commander. So with his pre-thought and his um, good grasp of tactical situation, um, Edson was able to place his unit of roughly 800 Marines up on that ridge. And they, they placed him at the right time because uh, the next day, the Japanese started hitting that ridge with um, naval gunfire and bombing. And they knew that the Japanese, is another indication they were coming on Bloody Ridge. So what Edson did, he... Um, you'll see on the maps that I provided you, he, he um, set his forces up in three lines. Uh, over, he had about mm, 1,500 yards long, which is the ridge is, and thick jungle on both sides. And he set his um, units up in three lines uh, between the um, the Raiders and the Paramarines uh, Battalion. When I said Paramarine Battalions, at that stage, they're only about 250, 300 effective. So they wasn't really a full strength battalion, and the Raiders had roughly about five hundred guys. So they have, he had about eight hundred, and I think fifty um, on strength. So you set him in three lines, and he knew the Japanese were going to attack. So he had his um patrols out, and they came across some Japanese, and they said, "Look, they're coming." So the first night, the the Japanese attacked. Uh, once again, I'm not going to go into the Battle of Bloody Ridge, but unfortunately for the Japanese commander Kawaguchi, um, he w- wasn't able to coordinate his attacks due to a number of factors, obviously the thick jungle and the terrain and um, the guys who had to cover a large area. Yeah, um, so, and the Barrett Battalion never even made it to the spot. So, oh, yeah. not the first day, yeah, because they had – it was actually a good plan, you know. They, they, had, yeah. um, they had three um, – he had two diversionary attacks supposed to be on the flanks. He had one on, on the east flank from the remnants of the Cheeky, the guys that was uh, a Cheeky detachment, the guys um, – the, the Bear Battalion, the Kuma Battalion, the guys who uh, supposed to have been the second echelon that Ajiki should have waited for. Mm-hmm. But he had those guys attacking the east flank. He had Oka um, and another battalion of the 124th attacking on the west flank. Um, I actually have a good video on that. It's called the um, 
El Company Ridge. I just made it. A lot of people don't even know anything about the Guadalcanal campaign or know quite a bit about the Guadalcanal campaign. That that fight gets left out. And so also the Battle of the Overland uh, Trail, which I did another one on that one. That was the other two flanking attacks that generally get left out in the overall uh, telling of the, the Battle of Bloody Ridge. But um, so there's some good videos or some good um, information to look up for those two side attacks because they're very important too especially the Battle of Overland Trail. Um, so Edson, the first night when the, when the Japanese attacked, they only could attack one battalion on Edson's right flank. And that, that attack on the right flank pushed one of Edson's companies back. So in the morning, this was the morning of the 12th and 13th. So the morning of the 13th, or sorry, the 13th, of, yeah, 12th and 13th. So in the morning of the 13th of September, um, Edson was faced with um, his right flank had been pulled back a refuse, so to speak, in the old 1800s speak. So his right flank was pushed back. And he knew the Japanese, he knew from intelligence, the Japanese were, you know, a few thousand. And he knew they only attacked with a few hundred that night. Edson figured it was a probing attack. Now, he wasn't aware that obviously that you know, Kawaguchi didn't do a probing attack, that he tried to attack full speed, but he only had an a portion of his forces to do it. But Edson knew that next second night they would probably come with, with everything they had. He said, if they come with everything they had, they will, they know we're up on the ridge now and they'll try to flank us again and go around us. He said, and, and then they'll probably throw thousands of Japanese through there and they'll cut us off. So we had two forward deployed companies and he said, well, if they cut us off, I would, you know, they'll cut us in two. So once again, Edson can read, uh, could read, uh, read the ground quite well. He was very known for that. Um, so what Edson did, he pulled his front line back about 400 yards and what that did, and he put him to the second line. So he had three lines the first day and then he, he consolidated them into two lines. And on that second line, then it opened up a, a killing space of about 150, 200 yards. And you have to remember too, um, pre-battle, the division uh, our uh, artillery commander Pedro Deval had came up partially him and his officers and pre-registered um, 75 millimeter and 105 millimeter howitzers because the Marines that stage had four battalions of artillery the 11th Marines which is the artillery regiment and they had actually brought one um, battalion of the 75s almost directly up to the ridge itself well on the bottom of the ridge and had 105s at the airfield so they had pre-registered that whole area and the Japanese, one Japanese officer said they were getting hit with so much artillery, he thought the Americans had machine gun artillery, as he, he called it, machine gun artillery. I think they fired, um, the second night, they fired over 2,000 rounds, 105s alone. And the barrels were almost burning out. They were just pumping through ammo. But anyway, they pre-registered it. So he pre-registered, he set his machine guns up. Um, and as you we probably discussed before, the, the Marines um, only could dig um, small shell scrape, so to speak. They didn't have anybody, had like one or two strands of barbed wire, um, and they only had two days to dig in. So it wasn't like they had fixed defensive position. So on the second night, the Japanese attacked, and they attacked with the two battalions, and they had another battalion. It would never, ever got into the fight, only elements of it. You know, they were actually lost in the jungle, which is was Kawaguchi's main uh, battalion, one of those what-ifs. But they attacked... Um, they pushed the Marines back um, throughout the night, and they basically consolidated around Edson's command post, which is <clears throat> um, Hill Number Two, or um, or Hill One Twenty, 
if you want to put it in feet. But the Marines could refer to it as hill number two. It's in his command post. So it formed a horseshoe uh, defense around it. So uh, throughout the night, Edson basically was 10 yards behind the front line, behind the machine gun post. At times, he was standing up on an um, ammunition box, yelling at his men, um, directing fire himself. At one stage, he was directing artillery fire himself. Um, he had bullets nicking his uniforms. He had uh, runners and radio men shot left and right uh, around him. Um, he never wavered. Uh, at one stage, the Marines were getting hit with um, Japanese phosphorus, not phosphorus, but um, it's like the, the cordite and magnesium in some of the flares the Japanese are firing had a peculiar smell to it. And I think some of the Japanese were firing and they seen the smoke. They had that smell. Neither was either the Japanese or some of the Marines started yelling gas, gas, gas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and some of the Marines on the left side, left flank, started to retrograde, so to speak, started to bug out, as they called it, started to move out, started to panic a bit. So Edson basically was yelling at them and saying, look, there's one thing the Japanese have that you don't, his guts. He says, get in your holes. He says, if you need to die in your holes, you're going to die in your holes. Are we not leaving this? You know, we have to protect this airfield. And he was <clears throat> basically at one stage had his 45 out. I don't know if he's going to shoot anyone, but he he, he was yelling at, at people to, and hold him back. And then not so much the Marines that out of fear they stayed. I think he shamed them. And that was a big factor because these are the Raiders, supposed to be the best uh, troops the Marines have. And I think um, some of the other officers are saying, oh, you call yourself Marines? You're not Marines. Get in there. You're Marines. You've got to, you know, you have to live up to your reputation. So that held held them together in that, in that tight moment. And in as you know, the Battle of Edson's Ridge or Bloody Ridge, it was hand-to-hand -hand fighting. It was very intense. Um, and it was a, a near-run thing, so to speak. You know, the author Richard Frank said it was probably the, the closest the Marines ever come to losing the campaign. You know, because it would have been a big what if that the Japanese would have made it to the airfield in, in, in vast numbers. You know, it would have been hard for Marines to try to get out, or get out of that. But anyway, um, <clears throat> he held. And because of his... Uh, inspiration, his courage, and his leadership, he was a big part of, of holding those Marines together to, to hold in, in place, to stop the Japanese. Um, so that was why Edson, he earned his Medal of Honor for that specific uh, act he did, that display of, of high courage. Um, and he was later, right after that battle, uh, nominated to um, uh, take over the command of the 5th Marine Regiment. And, and then he later on later went on to do bigger and better things throughout the war. Now, uh, Kim Bailey, and Kim Bailey, um, he was a major, and he was in charge of a C company of the Raiders. So the prelude to um, Lady Ridge, they fought at Tulagi on August the seventh. Hard fight at Tulagi, yeah. and um, <clears throat> he was wounded. Bailey was wounded, uh, and on the first day. So they got the hill, hill 208. They passed hill 208 with his company, first time in combat, never receiving Japanese infilade fire from machine guns. So Bailey personally ran up, um, engaged a bunker himself. They were trying to get into these bunkers. And at one stage, Bailey, who was, who was a very large man, I think, I don't know off the top of my head, was like 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", big, big fella. He was trying to get into the bunker, and he was kicking the top of the bunker, and his, and his foot actually went through the bunker. And he was shot in the thigh. 
before he could take the bunker out, him and a couple of other Marines. But they end up, he was wounded in the thigh, and he uh, he earned a medal, medal there. And he was evacuated. Um, and he was evacuated New Caledonia to the rear base there. So he missed the Tazamboko raid, which is the, the Marine or the uh, Raiders had done it. Tazamboko raid, pre-leading it, pre-preceding um, it. But then when Bailey was back in New Caledonia, they used him and another Marine officer. He was giving lectures to the Army troops there about how the fighting was on Guadalcanal and how the Japanese were. Because you got to remember, at this stage, there was no information coming back because everyone had been captured. Like in, in the Philippines, as you know, Wake Island, as you know, they fought the Japanese. Malaysia and the Philippines were just overrun really quickly. And it was very embarrassing for the Australian and British forces about that, for those encounters. And for the Philippines especially, it was horrifying and everyone was a prisoner. There was very few who could speak or... I mean, there were war correspondents in Manila, mind you. Yes. Uh, but yeah. But, you know, you didn't have that good, you know, firsthand information, you know, lessons learned coming back. So, yeah. you know, Loggy was the first time the, the Marines had actually fought the Japanese. Um, and... I wouldn't say live to tell about it, but able to relay the information back to others. So they were using Bailey quite a bit. So Bailey could have stayed um, New Caledonia. He had a severe wound. But what Bailey did, once he found out that the Marines had hit Tazimboko, his unit, he goes, oh, these guys are doing raids with the Tazimboko raid. He's, I don't want to go into that too much, but that was a, a raid a few days before um, Bloody Ridge that Edson um, devised to take out the Kawaguchi supplies yeah. when they were in the jungle. But he missed out on that. So he basically went AWOL, absent without leave, um, from New Caledonia and took a, uh, a flight back to Guadalcanal. Because, you know, at this stage, Guadalcanal had evacuation flights. They were flying in um, supplies, the cargo planes, and they would yeah. take out wounded at the same time on the return trip. So Bailey flew back. And when he flew back, um, he immediately went up to the ridge. Um, interesting fact. Bailey didn't have his boots. His boots were cut off of him. He lost his boots, so he had a pair of um, hospital slippers on, or hospital shoes. I don't know what the hospital shoes. I've said probably not slippers. It wouldn't last long. Some type of hospital footwear. Yeah. Um. So he he made it up to the command post, and he's you know the big greet. Oh, you know you're back, you're back, and probably someone probably laughed at him for his shoes. I, I imagine they would, but they were glad to have him back. So at this stage, um, he was given command of a company. And then shortly after, they said, you're my, you're going to be my executive officer. Edson told him, you're my executive officer. So what Bailey's role was, he was real instrumental in that second night also. Can you imagine six foot three guy, the Marines, you know, they needed someone to hold him together. They said between Bailey, they could hear Bailey's voice, you know, B, uh, B Company could hear Bailey's voice 100, 200 yards away yelling. Yeah, yelling at the Marines and and motivating them and and you know and, and getting them to fight, and he was a big target too. He was running around up on top of that that um hill number two. Also, Bailey was very instrumental. Um, they had one road, and to this day, you go there. There's only one road uh, to and fro Bloody Ridge. So Bailey was in a jeep, and he'd make a num number of ammunition runs back and forth, especially with hand grenades. Because the Marines threw hundreds of hand grenades. He was picking up bots and the bots of the hand grenades and making runs himself. And he was running up and he was giving out ammunition. You know, he was directing um other company commanders. He was he was jumping in the role of he, he was just multiple changing all kind. He was everywhere. When you speak to the veterans of the battle, they said Bailey, one minute they look around, Bailey was behind him on one flank, and the odd and someone says, Oh, 
he was with me on the other flank and he, oh, he was with me in the middle. So he was all over the place. And due to that, he was nominated for the, the Medal of Honor. He earned the Medal of Honor. Unfortunately for Bailey, though, he's um, after that, he was nominated as the, the full-time executive officer of the, the battalion. Um, Samuel Griffin became the battalion commander. At that stage, um, Edson had moved on to the 5th Marines. So roughly the 20, so about on the 27th of September, um, what, two weeks later, um, the battle of the, sometimes my Tanakau battles, which is the river, um, about four miles west of Henderson Field. Marines fought a number of uh, Matanikau battles there. Um, on the second battle of Matanikau, on the 27th of September, and we'll discuss it a bit later with an, another Medal of Honor. Um, Bailey was leading the first Raiders to try to get across a place called the Nippon Bridge, the Japanese one log bridge across a, um, a Matanikau. And the Raiders were going to flank in uh, the Japanese, which Puller and the second town, the fifth Marines had, had pushed across them, trying to push across the mouth of Matanikau to hold the Japanese there. The Raiders are going to um, move down the river and flank them. And the rest of the 1st Battalion, the 7th Marines, was going to do a Phoebus assault and land at Point Cruz and come up behind them in a, in a giant pincer movement and, and basically um, destroy the Japanese at the mouth of Matanikau. So when the 1st Raiders were moving up the um, east bank to try to make it to the log bridge, the Japanese had pushed uh, a reinforced platoon with some machine guns across, uh, unknown to the Marines. And um, they ran into an ambush. Um, in the first moments of the ambush, Bailey, once again, leading from the very front, um, was trying to get his men to move in place. He's obviously giving commands, doing what he's supposed to do. And he stood up and he got shot uh, with a machine gun burst in the face, in the chest, and basically killed instantly. Um, he, apparently he was on his knees looking over a log and he just fell straight down. Um, and... The battalion commander came up because they know they got stopped trying to get an assessment of the situation. Looked down and seen Bailey, became very um, mad, tried to do a flanking um, movement himself with another company to the left, and he was shot in the shoulder. So the Raiders attack just stopped. The only time the Raiders ever stopped in, in their career, so to speak. But um, unfortunately, Bailey never lived to know he was earned. He was nominated for the medal and, and earned a medal. So he was one of the um, – it's not a posthumous medal, but he died shortly after uh, earning his his medal. So that was the the two Medal of Honors earned at the Battle of uh, Bloody Ridge. Bloody Ridge. And it's, yeah. yeah. And then our next would be Monroe. Yeah, so uh, that brings us up yeah, to the 27th um, of September. And I just gave you a bit of a, a prelude to that battle, second Matanikau. So Monroe, Douglas Monroe was a, a coxswain. Um, I think he was a petty officer. Um, well, let me get this right. I'll probably get this wrong. Petty officer first class. He was a petty officer. And he was in charge of, of the landing craft. So at the time, the Marines had the plan. Like I said, they were going to um, hold the Japanese in a fight, fight attack at the mouth of Matanikau. They were going to flank them with the Raiders. 
to come up behind them. And then elements of the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, which are basically two and a half companies under the famous Marine um, Louis Chesty Puller. That was his battalion. But Puller at that stage was on the other side of the um, bank yeah. with um, with Edson. Edson's first, Edson's first regimental fight. So that was the, the plan. And they had a boat basin, which is at Cookham. Now, Cookham is near the airfield. Cookham was a, a, a pre-war village. And that was when the Japanese in, in July, in June and July, when they were building the airstrip, that was where they first landed, and they had some docks there, and um, they had a, some of their um, buildings and headquarters and a few of their camps there. Some of the, the good photos of Guadalcanal, especially in the first few few days, you know, 7th, 8th, and 9th, it shows the Marines moving through the Japanese camps, and it shows the captured, you know, the Tojo Ice Factory and, you know, all the Japanese buildings and all the, the famous buildings they captured. A lot of them are at Kukum. Now, some around the Lunga Lagoon, but they had two or three camp, construction camp, but the main headquarters around Kukum. But anyway, um, the Navy and the Coast Guard adopted that as their boat basins for small boats, like the landing craft, or the Higgins boats mainly. And their tank lighters. I've got what the normal nomenclature somebody out there would know. It's landing craft, uh, a tank lighter. It was a, a, a larger uh, tank or a larger landing craft that can well, hold a tank or a vehicle or yeah. a platoon of platoon of Marines. You know, where Higgins boat would hold probably a squad. Um, anyway, they had a, a combination of those. So they transported the, the first elements of the first tank submarines. And they landed them on the west side of Point Cruz. And obviously, you'll, when you air this, you'll you'll show the maps and where they landed. And I've yeah. sent you a few good maps and then there's you anyway, know they landed there. And and um Monroe was in charge of those landing craft. And they had a a, US, a destroyer called the USS Monson too, was providing cover for them. So they went there, they landed the Marines. And then they retrograded back to the boat basin. And they're waiting for the senior to come pick the Marines back up later. But the, the Marines ran into a hornet's nest. So they ran in uh, fresh elements of the 4th Japanese Infantry Regiment, which unnoticed to the Marines. And once again, on both sides of the campaign, the intel uh, let both sides down at times. They That's underestimated the, the numbers, especially the Japanese, but the Marines underestimated numbers in this stage. And the Marine veterans, if you read the, some of the guys from 1-7, the first time submarines, they said when they were moving through that area in the coconut groves, they looked and it was fresh Japanese equipment and tents and set up everywhere. And they said, what's the Japanese? So they went up on the first ridge, which is Hill 84. And if you go to uh, Haneari, which is the capital city of Guadalajara today, it's called Lankiki Ridge. It's right behind where all the tourist hotels are, if you ever go there. Okay. Visit the tourist hotel. You look out, you see the ocean, you turn around, you see Lankiki Ridge. It's mainly three good um, tourist hotels. You look out, you'll see where this Medal of Honor was earned with Monroe and where this fight was happening, which many don't not even aware. And some of these U.S. tour groups that go there, don't even let them aware. You know, they say, oh, it's not much happening here. Hmm. And I actually heard it myself one time. I was, I was listening to a tour group. I was in a hotel and I heard one of the, this is a U.S. tour group, and the tour guide Basically says, someone says, oh, much happened around here? He goes, oh, not much happened around here. I'm, I'm looking out my window. I'm going, there's one Medal of Honor, two, three Medal of Honor just went inside of where I was looking. I go, yeah, okay. Yeah, not much happened around here. But anyway, um, 
so that was the plan. So Munro's dropped him off. He's moved back to the boat base and waiting for the, the, the signal to come back. So what happened was Marines got up on that ridge. They got cut off. Um, the reason they had landed because it was miscommunication at the division command post. At the time all this was occurring, it was a major air raid, and it disrupted communications. And when the Raiders sent a uh, radio report back that division thought that they had crossed the river, which they wasn't across the river. And they said, oh, the Raiders across the river. Then we'll launch our behind the, um, behind the Japanese amphibious assault. So when they landed, the Raiders went behind the river. Second time, 5th Marines hadn't pushed across the mouth of Tanakau. So they got up on that ridge. The Japanese came in and trapped them, and there was no way out. So Chesty Puller, which is a battalion commander, was on the other side of Matanikau, was highly irate, as you can imagine, trying to sort something out with um, Edson at the time. And I think in from all the research I've done, it wasn't that Edson says, no, you know, I can't commit any more forces to rescue him. I said, I think he was saying, let's just formulate a better plan. But Puller being Puller, he, you know, immediately take action type of guy. Um, he goes, no, that's my guys. I'm getting them out. So what he did, he he basically got into a um, a, um, a landing craft, made his way out to the, the destroyer, which was sitting back at Cookham, jumped on there and says, my guys are in trouble. Follow me. So Monroe sees that and he goes, okay, we got to get them out. So he gets his, his seven boats, I think, landing craft, following the um, USS Monson, like ducks in a row, so to speak. So they made it there. The Marines, in their haste, I mean, this is, you know, it sounds comical, had forgotten the radio because they, these guys are back at, you know, yeah. the perimeter said, jump on the boats and he forgot his radio. But to make up for that, which was the, the guy who forgot the radio, uh, Sergeant Raysbrook, he has uh, the semaphore flags, you know, the, the naval signaling flags at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was able to get up on the ridge under fire and signal to the destroyer. And and destroyer was able to lay five-inch rounds, like a corridor on the left and right side of that ridge to allow the Marines to come off the ridge and make it back to the, the beach. So as you can imagine... The Japanese were throwing insulation fire, and you can really see it in my video, especially the Monroe video. And the, the Marines labeled it as a uh, little Dunkirk, that's what they called it, little Dunkirk. So I've made two videos on that. So they, they were getting hit pretty hard by the fire. Marines at the beach, the boats are going in. Some of the the um, Coast Guard boats didn't want to go in. You know, pullers, you know, you better go in. And then and uh, Monroe was telling the guys, we got to go in, we got to go in, we got to rescue these Marines. So they made it. They went in. They were started pulling Marines off. Right. Um, Monroe was a coxswain of a boat. He was a coxswain in one of the boats, which is, you know, the person that basically guides the boat and you know, controls the boat like a driver of a boat, so to speak. Yeah. You know, there'll be some naval, naval fellow out there going, no, he's not. A coxswain does this, this, and this. And, you know, who's this guy? You don't know what he's talking about. Now, I admit that. You know, uh, I'm a former Marine. It, you know, I'm, I'm cargo. I'm not a boat driver. But anyway, he's in there. And at one stage, one of the uh, landing craft got hung up on a sandbar. Yeah. And they were taking fire. And the Cotswain, he, he gave up his job. He goes, we need to provide cover and fire. So what he did, he jumped on a Lewis gun, which is they had Lewis guns mounted in the um, the front of the, the boats. Mm -hmm. So he said, 
told a new a new coxswain and another um crewman he goes put my boat between this stranded landing craft and the japanese he'd i'll provide cover and fire so he maneuvered his boat between them and if you see on my video it's only it was only 150 yards 200 at the most away from the coast or the um point cruise where the infiltrating fire was coming in the japanese infiltrated fire from left and right and they were hitting them with with heavy machine guns so you know, Marines are getting hit. His own guys are getting hit. The boats are getting hit, but he still maintained under heavy machine gun fire. He maintained a steady covering fire. And that allowed um, the Navy guys and the Coast Guard guys to hook up a cable to pull that other landing craft off that sandbar and allowed the rest of the Marines to be evacuated. And it was almost as soon as that, um, Landing craft was free. I forgot the, his his friend's name. He's in a good interview with him. He's, he's, he retells the story a number of times in a number of accounts, but he's in the same boat with Monroe. And he says he could see the bullets, Japanese bullets, coming across the water. And he's trying to yell out to Monroe but, but because the, the boat was so loud, the engine noise and the machine gun noise, Monroe couldn't hear him. And he could he said the bullets come across and stitched Monroe across the face and head and he's, he's fell down to the bottom of the boat and he said i thought he was dead and then they they pulled out and then it went to monroe's aid and apparently he's come come to gain uh, consciousness and he said words to effect did we get him out did we get it out yeah did we get him out and he goes yeah we did and apparently he died died shortly after that um so he was he received his um medal of honor he was nominated by the battalion commander, um, Chesty Puller, for the Medal of Honor. And to this day, he's the only U.S. Coast Guardsman to earn a Medal of Honor. And when I was at Guadalcanal, and they were, they're going to have one very shortly because it's the 80th anniversary of I wish I was over there now. Um, the U.S. Coast Guard uh, holds a ceremony. Sometimes they're not there every year, but I've been there a couple of times when U.S. Coast Guards have arrived in a Coast Guard ship. Um, in fact, when I was there last time, it was the Coast Guard uh, ship Monroe. It's one of the best ships. Not ship, actually. I think they've named a number of their ships Monroe. This was the latest in the class, or latest ship to be named Monroe. But it arrived, and they had a nice ceremony um, at that location. So there's a monument to him at the uh, Honiari or Point Cruise Yacht Club. Uh, if you go there to this day, you'll see a monument to him. It didn't happen directly in front of the Yacht Club. They keep the monument there for security because it can be secured at the yacht club and it's a place where people can go. But if you go to the yacht club, you look out to your left, um, directly behind one of the tourist hotels, that's where it actually occurred it. The action occurred. So yeah, and, and he's probably the most famous, well, he is probably the most famous Coast Guardman. If you ask any Coast Guard, they learn about him in, in their basic training, their boot camp. Um, very, very famous guy, Monroe. So that was the the that was the only battle on Guadalcanal campaign that the U.S. base or especially the Marines um, uh, lost. Yeah. Uh, that's battle Matanical. They learned a lot of lessons, and then they, sure. a couple of weeks later they gave it right back to them. Yeah, <laughs> it reversed yeah. course certainly in the second Matanical because the Japanese made uh, grave errors when they tried to push. <laughs> oh yeah, when they pushed across the the and established a. a Riverhead, so to speak. Riverhead. Well, the uh, the next one is a household name, Barcelona. Arguably one of the most yes, famous. Yes, 
have to drink my, my Australian water for this one. <laughs> yeah, I have a good I have a good episode on Barcelona mm. uh, on the, the Medal of Honor location. It's probably most, as you can imagine, it's the most widely popular uh, video I have yeah. on, on the Barcelona itself. Um, <clears throat> I've done a, a uh, another podcast once on, on Barcelona and you know I want to go too much into Barcelona um, you know John Barcelona the Marine Sergeant versus John M- Manila John Barcelona the legend and what Barcelona is, is morphed into a major legend I mean he's his medal of honor is more than deserved but you know Paul Barcelona was I wouldn't say Paul Barcelona but Barcelona he was, mach- he was a professional machine gunner that's what he, Marine machine gunner, that was his life. That was his job. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to fight. He wanted to take care of his, his, his boys as he called them. He was a heavy machine gun platoon leader or, or squad or section leader. So after the, um, I probably should say this after we talk about the Medal of Honor, but I'll just mention it now since I'm discussing it. So Baslon, when he came out, <clears throat> um, uh, he was sent on a war bonds tour. He didn't want to go. He was offered, he's turned down two, uh, officer commissions. He he turned them down. Um, they put him on a war bonds tour. They, I think the the government kind of used him. You know, he was a young, single, good looking fella. Enlisted Marines, the first enlisted Marine uh, living that they you could actually go on a war bonds tour and earn a medal of honor. He was a national hero. Um, yeah. So, and if you ever see the you know, you, you viewers and listeners will see the HBO series The Pacific. You know, it tells the story quite well especially after he came from Guadalcanal in Australia and then went on his war bonds tour and lived the life so to speak and at the end of the day just wanted to get back to his boys as he said and he ended up obviously dying in, in Iwo Jima another movie 45. I think uh, Flags of Our Fathers I think did the war tour as well if I'm not mistaken oh that's that's the guys who raised the flags on Suribachi oh, that was Ujima. yeah that's true but that's another good good indication of how these guys were used to you know and, and we still it's do it to this day. That's what got, yeah. 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 <clears throat> anyway, John Baslon. Um, yeah, I could go into, you know, two hours talking about Baslon, but um, I think most of the viewers and listeners are very, very familiar with John Baslon, probably one of the most famous uh, Americans in World War II, probably one of the most famous Marines in history, I can yeah, say. Definitely. You know, in basic training, Barcelona, he was one of the marine legends you learn about. You know, there's Barcelona roads and Barcelona buildings and everything's named after Barcelona. Um, Raritan, New Jersey, where his hometown is, every year they have a, a parade. Um, one of those to-do lists I need to do one day <clears throat> to go there. And has a famous statue of Barcelona there. Um, bare-chested, cradling a 1917 head machine gun in his arms. Um, so... Yes, John Bassalon was a. Um, he initially served in the U.S. Army for for four years pre-war. He went back home to New Jersey uh, for a short period. I think he became a truck driver and a few other things and like that from here. But he, he he wasn't happy with civilian life, so he joined the Marines pre-war, and he went straight into the Marines. Didn't go to basic training, which a lot of people don't know. He didn't go to basic training, which is fairly common in those days. If you'd had prior service, say, for example, in the Army, um, you didn't have to go to Marine basic training. So they'd send him straight into a, an infantry unit. He went to the 5th Marines uh, Quantico. And then in 19, 
January 1941, the Seventh Marine Regiment was forming. The First Marine Division was forming, so he became one of the initial uh, Marines in the Seventh Marine Regiment. <clears throat> he was a machine gun uh, section leader, which uh, heavy machine guns. So uh, at that stage, that was let me think, uh, 16, 16 Marines, uh, one section leader, sixteen Marines. Each section had two machine guns in it, so that was a total of four machine guns, four heavy machine guns. And the reason I'm mentioning this is in his Medal of Honor citation, this gets some of the confusion around and the fallacies around some of his his exploits. You know, people say he only had two machine guns, but that's how the it mentions it in the um, citation that he had two machine gun sections, which is a bit of a technicality. But when, when people tell the story about you know, him and his two machine guns, it's not he had four heavy machine guns. Anyway, um, Seventh Marines didn't land on Guadalcanal on the seventh of August. They landed on the seventeenth of, of September. The first major resupply they had of troops. Um, they sent the Seventh Marines up on the Bloody Ridge in a southern line because it, it gave Vandegrift a chance to actually man his perimeter uh, fully 360. And it plus also gave Vandegrift a, a fresh unit to do some limited offensive operations. Vandegrift referred to it as passive defense. They wanted to keep the Japanese on the other side of the Tanakau because they know the Japanese could bring artillery there. They could pound the airfield. There's something the Japanese, I don't know if, I don't know if they realized it, but they never come to fruition that they tried to, to hit the airfield a few times or artillery fire, but it was sporadic. But if they just kept that airfield, that was what they had to do. They had to neutralize that airfield and they've done it. And they did it a few times, you know, especially yep. on the, as you know, the 13th to 14th of October and now the battleships, they smashed it with, with major naval shields. Two major battleships. That was a hell of a, yeah. A hell of a shot. Oh, yeah. It's like 970 Most shells or something. Yeah. They have 14 inch rounds. And, and then the next couple of nights, there were hundreds of rounds of eight inch and five inch. You know, it's the most intensive um, shelling that any Allied troop in World War II experienced. Yep. Naval shelling. It's just, it's unreal the bombardment they, they, they went underwent. But the only thing the Japanese had to do was to, just to keep that um, airfield under constant shelling and to deny that, that unsinkable aircraft carrier. That's, that's, mainly what they had to do because everything was involving around the fight for Henderson. You know, it was yeah. probably more strategic. But they can never six months. Yeah, but they can never mass all their field artillery because of the transport situation with the Tokyo Express eventually. It's they just couldn't get all their field artillery. They couldn't get east of the Matanika River and literally get a good go of it. They just kind of sprinkled when they could and yeah. Yeah. Harassment top five. Mm -hmm. Um <clears throat> so um, the Seventh Marines had landed, and they started using offensive operations. It was just talked about on the twenty seventh of September. You know, they landed on seventeenth. Ten days later, there were some heavy combat. But Bastion was involved in the um, on the Mini Dunkirk because he was in heavy heavy machine guns. It's hard to walk around and move with these heavy guns. Um, so. He was on a fixed line on that southern line, and, and they started digging in bunkers and putting in. Uh, clearing firing lines and field firing lines and and putting in barbed wire because they were getting a lot of resupply then they could actually do a lot of this. So they started digging in on that southern line. So they, the Seventh Marines manned that line from like the seventeenth or sorry the eighteenth of September, you know, all the way up until um, the end of October. <clears throat> so they dug in quite a bit. 
Um, so what they did, if you was to look, when you go to my videos, you'll see you have the bloody, you have bloody ridge, and then they extended it down into the flat jungle terrain for another thousand yards to a place called Coffin Corner. The Coffin Corner was a large open area. Um, the Army and the Marines call it the, referred to as the Bowling Alley. It was twenty five hundred yards long, about two hundred yards wide. It was just a uh, just grasslands, and then dug in bunker lines through there. So that was that was part of the perimeter on the the um, east and southern flank. <clears throat> so the end of October, the Japanese had devised uh, their third and what um, turned out to be the largest offensive attack. And once again, it replicated the, the plans uh, just like a larger, sort of speak, um, September attack on Bloody Ridge. So this involved a reinforced division. Well, Japanese had good plans. They always had some good plans. They just couldn't, for a number of reasons, couldn't um, put it to fruition, make it work out, uh, mainly for uncoordination and, you know, and their um, strict obedience to following the rules and their centralized command and, you know, the ter terrain and underestimating the enemy and 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 the number of factors. So the plan was to have a major assault um, with a regiment and a tank company across the Matanikau. And that's where the Marines thought they were going to attack. And they were going to hold the Marines there because that was the only place you could bring tanks across. Um, the Matanikau because the sandbar wasn't a bridge, it was a sandbar. And it was the only place because they had a, a pre-war coastal track of government road. And that's Vandegrift knew that was the only place the Japanese could bring tanks across. So the Japanese knew that too. And um, that's why they, they really demonstrated, you know, they made a show of force to, and the Marines at that stage had two battalions fully deployed up on the Matanikau to hold them on the other side. Cause they didn't want to move that artillery over because Japanese want to get on that side, put the artillery as a staging base and then just shoot their, their tank straight down the road. So they want to keep the Japanese on that side. But they left, the Marines had left, and you'll see in the maps, they left their left flank exposed. They had like a fish hook line. But the left flank had a large ridge and the left flank exposed. So what the Japanese were going to do, they were going to take a regiment with tanks, you know, <clears throat> make a, a push across the Matanica, hold those two battalions in place. And it was almost like a reversal of what the Marines did on the second battle of Matanica. And then they were going to take another, like a reinforced battalion, like a semi-small regimental um, force under Oka, Colonel Oka again. He's like, Oka is always showing his his face on Guadalcanal. Bad luck, Oka. The one twenty-four. Yeah, but Oka was going to cross down at the Nippon Bridge, and he was going to move up on that flank. And he knew the Marines. If he could go up on that flank, they were going to cut those two Marine battalions off. At the same time, a few days before, the Japanese with three regiments. Um, the 128, the, the, the um, 29th and the 16th, 2nd Sendai Division. Um, you know Japanese. Um, you can pronounce Japanese quite well. What do you, what do you, you see the 2nd Division's commander? How you, how you would you pronounce his name? Muriyama? Muriyama? Yeah. 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 That's how I've always heard it referred to as Muriyama. Muriyama was the division commander. Muriyama was going to cut a road, so to speak, just turn out to a track. So he sent his engineers. And what they're going to do is a 30-mile road, a 30-mile track to the, through the thick jungles, away from 
the Solomon Island Scout size away from the aerial reconnaissance size, and then we're going to come up in that south perimeter and go up on Bloody Ridge again and go straight into it. Instead of this time with the brigade, we hit them with a whole division. And they knew the Marines were um, probably thin in that area, which they were, because once, like I said before, Vandegrift thought that the main attack was going to come across the river. Yeah. So what he did in that southern line, he had the second battalion of the seventh Marines and the first battalion of the seventh Marines, which um, Barcelona was part of the first battalion of seven Marines. He had them manning 2,500 yards. So what happened was he said, well, you know, nothing's going to happen down south. The first battalion's had a hard time of it. We'll leave them down there to rest. Just, just like the Raiders, you know. Um, but the Raiders expected a fight, but one seven didn't expect a fight. Yeah. So they pulled two seven. And I'm, I'm this is when we're going to talk about the next fella. Um, next Medal of Honor. Um uh, got her in the next Medal of Honor, Mitchell Page. This yeah. is where he comes from. They pull two seven, which is Mitchell Page's in. They pull them out and put them up, up on that ridge that I referred to near the Matanikau to cover that exposed left flank. Because they said, when the Japanese, we know they're going to come, then we're going to hit us on this flank. Let's put some Marines up on this flank to protect it. So they told Puller, they said, you've got to cover these 2,500 yards with 500 men. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll do my best I can. So what he did was, two seven was up on Bloody Ridge, one seven was in that jungle flat. So he's taken one platoon from every company, including some of his headquarter guys, and threw them up on Bloody Ridge in those bunkers. Because you got to remember, the Marines had a well-established line, coconut log bunkers, fully enclosed. They had um, barbed wire. I've got some photos of it. They got some about four to five foot high barbed wire uh, fences with aprons of barbed wire on. The thick jungle, they didn't have much field um, fields of fire. But what they would do, they'd cut firing lanes. Um, they'd just cut them into the jungle at, at angles, 75 to 100 yards. Knowing when the Japanese attack, they would take the path of least resistance, especially in that thick jungle, right? Especially with infiltration um, techniques the Japanese employed, you know, to move around the flanks, to hold the front, move around the flanks, to move very quickly. They said, if we can move through that thick jungle, they're going to take that passive least resistance and move quicker, plus it's easier. And what we'll do is we'll put our machine guns in our inflated, you know, crossed positions to cover those um, firing lines. So if they get into the firing line, we can mow them down. Plus they had 37 millimeter um, anti-tank guns the Marines did in there with canister shot, which would hold about 128 um buckshot or 30 caliber size rounds like a giant shotgun they had artillery registered in there they had their mortars registered in there um almost every bunker had a machine gun because you read accounts some of the marines did walk back to the the aircraft crashed uh boneyard or graveyard they call them with a crashed aircraft and they would strip machine guns off those uh, airplanes and bring them back put them in their bunkers because you know at the time the marines had the, the boat action springfield 03 rifles yeah. You know, and they go, you know, I told this story before, you know, you get one private, I could just see it. He's sitting there with his old three bolt action rifle. And another private walks up with a you know lot machine gun. He goes, Where'd you get that? He goes, I oh, go back. They got bunches of them in those planes. He goes, I'm gonna get me a machine gun. He probably goes back and but Vandergriff had walked through there and he said, This is a machine gunner's paradise. Mm. So basically the Mer even though that Puller only had five hundred guys for twenty five hundred yards, one battalion and two battalion front. 
you know, every bunker wasn't manned, but he had, they had, um, I guess, force multipliers, as they call it in the military, with those fixed positions. Anyway, Barcelona, and when it's two sections of machine guns, was in two different bunkers. You had two machine guns in one bunker and two machine guns in another bunker. And I know a lot of this because I've done a lot of research on Barcelona. I also have Barcelona's, uh, one of his official testimonies he gave in September of 43 to two Marine officers who were interviewing. And this is on, and I've got transcript. I got the transcript. So they, they basically step, they start out with him and they ask him what happened. And he just tells them a basic story, uh, being quite humble, which he was. And then they start drilling down almost like two law enforcement interviewers, investigators. And they were saying, okay, well, how many, what was the distance between your bunkers? How far away was the barbed wire? You know, how many rounds you fire here? How'd you do this? And he and gained a lot of evidence, a lot of, a lot of good um, information, you know, straight, straight from Barcelona's um, on, on testimony. And he's giving it to two Marine officers. And he's, and it's one of the, there's a lot of, um, false reports about some of Barcelona's information. One because he's a legend, and over time, you know, with the, you know, the you know, we call it the Chinese whispers. One person tells somebody, and tells another person, and it just gets blown out of proportion. Some of the information. Um, sometimes the newspapers, as in those days, kind of. I know it's hard to believe that newspapers was overinflate something or not tell the total truth, but you know, <clears throat> he would either speak to a newspaper reporter who thinks, "Oh, that's a bit boring. I'll add some stuff to it," yeah. or he would speak to someone and someone would speak to me or someone else. It's not direct information, but this information comes directly from Barcelona and he's giving it to two Marine officers. So I tend to believe this is a very valuable document because he's not going to, you know, he knows the Marine officers can double check, not to say Barcelona would ever stretch the truth or anything, but I'm saying he is a professional NCO. The information he's is in his transcript, I, I believe is, is, is hundred percent accurate. Uh, he's probably even downplaying, and he does. He downplays a bit of his his effort in his role, which was amazing what he did. So <clears throat> he's there with his two machine gun sections. And they're covering a track or a trail um, called Sector Three Trail because Vandegrift had divided the Marines into different defensive sectors, and they were covering Sector Three. So the Japanese came in that night. They knew they were coming. The outpost. I mean, if you see the movie H. The old Pacific series, a uh, place called Briggs Outpost. Um, I'll have a video on Briggs Outpost. You have Platoon Sergeant Ralph Briggs, 46 Marines up on the outpost. They're about 1,200 yards in front of the lines. They said the Japanese are coming. And Puller, battalion commander, says, okay, pull out and move to your left and try to come back into the Army lines because that stage the Army had arrived, the 164th Infantry Regiment. And they were manning the left side. Uh, adjoining lines for the Marines. They're tied into the Marines at a place called Coffin Corner. So, um, Barcelona was on the um, battalion net, which is they had field phone. That's what they got their main communication was they were tied in with field phone. You had a field phone wires and they just, in the old radios, you'd click, 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 and that would generate a little electricity and they'd let you could hear it. And everyone was tied into the battalion net and he was listening to it and he knew that the Japanese were coming. So they, they were covering this gate, a gate in the line. So the Marines would, would do patrols every day and they had this barbed wire lines and had gates. And the gate, I got a, a good picture of the gate. The gate is, uh, you speak French, I should have run this 
Apache before. It's a share de free, cheval de free. It's like the U.S. Civil War. Sorry? Uh, Chevalier. So it's Maybe. I'd say yes. It sounds good. I got a picture of it there. I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen it to you. I think it's got – you see the U.S. Civil War. They got those, like the pole. Okay, yeah. The pole, and it has the spikes stuck through it, Mm -hmm. and it's stuck on the ground like that, like an X shape. Yeah, well, they had one of them, and they had barbed wire around it, and they had it covering that gate, and that was the main avenue of approach. And they knew that thick jungle on the left side, the Japanese would probably run down the. And they did. So, unfortunately for the Japanese, they couldn't coordinate their attacks. Um, <laughs> once again, it's like they replicated the the Bloody Ridge. Yeah, it's and, almost the same. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, they had one one whole regiment. It never was in committed to the whole defense. In fact, that regiment was moving parallel to lines. It was lost. Yeah. The 128. Yeah. yeah. And they end up at Coley Point, which in early November, big battle there. Yeah. The second Raiders got after them. But anyway, it's another story. Um, So they attacked. And when they attacked, luckily for the Marines, they attacked in platoon sizes, you know, my squad size, you know, 20 men, 30 men, 40 men, you know, in dribs and drafts, piecemeal attack. But Barcelona was covering that vital Sector 3 trail. And he was on the left left bunker with his two machine guns. 30 yards away was two other bunkers. Was it with, yeah, no, sorry, another bunker was two other machine guns. <clears throat> well, Barcelona says they started engaging to the left, supporting A Company, which is to the left. And they started engaging. Um, so Barcelona was running those two guns. And then sometime uh, shortly after that, a runner came over. And says, uh, Bassalon, um, or probably Sergeant, um, the right bunker's been taken out. We need we need to man it. Your right bunker's been taken out. So he goes, okay. So he grabs two other uh, guys, grabs a machine gun with a tripod on it. And then another thing, too, you will see in movies, that, and even in Pacific, they didn't get this right, that Bassalon didn't have a tripod on that machine gun. He had a tripod. And he mentions he had a tripod. And when you read about his actions, he had to have a tripod. You know, he's he's a professional machine gun platoon sergeant, not going to grab a gun without a tripod in case the tripod's broken on the other guns. He's not going to take an incomplete machine gun. And he mentions he, he the whole gun weighed 100 pounds and he threw it spread eagle on his back, tripod and all. And they're making their way. And even though the bunkers, other bunkers 30 yards away, they had communication trails cut behind so they had a, a track trail about 40 or 50 yards and went behind each bunker that hit a parallel trail about 50 uh, 50 60 meters back so they had to run 50 60 meters back hit the parallel trail to run 30 meters and 50 meters back and hit the other one that's how it was but in between there he said that we run into uh six to eight japanese and this is where sometimes people take uh, a bit of liberal um, information and put their own spin on it. Uh, Barcelona says, we took them out. We took care of them. They said, well, Admiral, we took care of them. Because remember, Barcelona has a much big heavy machine gun on a tripod. And the other two guys with him had, had, had guns. I mean, potentially, Barcelona could have took the tripod off and he, if he had it loaded and fired some rounds with it holding the tripod. But it wasn't like in the movies where he's just taking it and fired it from the hip and gunning these people down. It wasn't like that. Anyway, they moved to the bunker, and there's only two guys in the bunker still. And 
And when he said what he says next, he says the dead and wounded have already been taken away. Because at that stage, even though he raided 16 men, he only had 14 for the battle. He had 14. So he had seven in each bunker. So five guys. Um, he had two dead and three wounded already, and, that, and the two dead had been taken away. So that tells me there was a bit of time because in the middle of the heat of the battle, you're not going to take the dead away, really. Because So I don't know if they were wounded and they just evacuated them all and they took all the wounded in and dead. But anyway, he gets there. There's two other guys fighting. He said one, Evans, was yelling like a banshee, he said. He's the bravest Marine he ever seen. He's he's, he's sitting, sitting there with a um, rifle and pistol just firing away, yelling at the Japanese because the Japanese – they were running past them, one, two, and three. They were just trying to infiltrate. So Barcelona says he puts his machine gun down in a flat, and then he goes into the bunker, which was two feet away. And then he goes in a lot of detail when, when they asked him how feet, you know, what was the distance between two guns. So he rode in a bunker, and he said one gun was completely destroyed. So probably hit me there. He said the Jap Japanese throwing dynamite, which they were using trying to blast through the, the wire, or a Japanese um, – <clears throat> knee mortar grenade launcher round had destroyed it he said the other one had a ruptured shell and he said he he fixed it in less than a minute so basically ruptured shell is when you're firing especially a, a machine gun um you have a shell for one reason or the other actually splits and, and sticks in the chamber and you either have to get a knife or a tool to pull it out to free it so you can start and get the gun up and working again so in the Pacific series, they get did right. You see how he goes underneath and hits it, and it and it throws it out, and it chambers another round. And he basically said, "Yeah," and he said that the the boys are probably a bit excited. They couldn't clear it. Who knows? Anyway, he got it that gun up and running. So he started firing that gun, and he'd fire. Each belt had two hundred fifty rounds, so he'd fire fire one, and he'd roll out and fire the other one. He'd go back and forth between them, and he would load his own. They said, did you, he said, yeah, I would load, I'd load my own gun, I'd fire my own gun, I'd load my own gun, I'd fire my own gun. And at the same time, the other other Marines were fighting cover and fire on left and right. Bastion said he had a 45 pistol and he laid it on the ground beside him. And he said, every once in a while, they'd yell out, there'd be Japanese behind him, he'd turn around in, in a bunker and, and shoot. Right, and then he'd put it down and fire. And I asked him, he said, well, how many rounds did you fire on your 45? He said, I fired um I had two left at the end of when the morning time came. So, you know, if he'd had probably maybe eight rounds, seven, eight rounds, he'd probably fired five or six. Five or six rounds. But what Bassalon did, he kept throughout the night just firing, firing, firing. And they were in support of a 37-millimeter uh, gun. Now, luckily, I was very, very lucky, and he's still alive, which is quite amazing. Um, one of the, the men that was manning that 37 millimeter gun, his name's George Mason. He's still alive, 97 years old. I spoke to him six, seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago. Wow. And his memory is, is, is amazing. It's amazing. It's just, you know, he could, he could, he talks about the nomenclature of the guns. He knew exactly where everyone was. Cause I had a, a, a sketch made by the gun crew member in the eighties. And he lists everyone in his gun crew. And when his daughter uh, contacted me through my site, oh, my dad was there. Told me which unit he was in. And I go, hold on a minute. What's his name? He said, oh, he was he was around that area with a, with a 37 millimeter gun. You know, it was a 17-year-old kid. And I looked at the, once they told me his name, then I looked at some of my records. And the gun crew, 
and his name's on the gun crew. So, and, and the stories he was saying is, is quite amazing. Anyway, Baseline Guns was supporting his gun too because they were covering that vital gate. <clears throat> it wasn't a constant Japanese were constantly attacking throughout the night, um, like one solid stream of Japanese. Baseline said, you know, we would fire or I would fire. It might be another 30 minutes before another group would come, another 10 minutes before another group would come. He said, but at one stage, I was getting short ammunition. And this is the really amazing part of what he did. He goes, I knew the ammo point was 150 yards away. And, you know, in my research and my, my travels and walking in battlefield, I've located the ammo point, which is, yeah. And he's also, Bassalon mentions, you'll see in my video, he mentions uh, the barbed wire line was 30 feet away. And it is. I, I counted 33 feet, you know, using my feet, which is, I didn't do a, a ruler, but it's just amazing. But he said he, he could see, Bassalon said he could see 30 feet to the barbed wire and only 20 feet on the other side. So a limited amount of, they were, they were um, counting on that thick barbed wire to hold the Japanese up. And I'll, I'll mention a, a point about how the Japanese bodies got stacked up. That's another kind of a fallacy about the Bassalon Medal of Honor incident, um, about him running out and moving the bodies. That didn't happen. But anyway, he's running short ammunition. Ammunition points 150 yards behind him. He knows at this stage, there's a lot of Japanese are infiltrated through, like one, two, three, four, five. So they're infiltrating through Japanese everywhere. So, you know, they thought, well, this is the best place to stay is in that bunker. They may have overran us, but they haven't ran, killed me yet and overran us yet. And we're still fighting. Best we can, we can do. He's keeping his men together, fighting. They're all they're holding the line, so to speak, in that part. So Bastion tells his men, you stay here. And he's left four belts of ammunition to per gun. And he, Marine officers asking, why did you leave four belts of ammunition? You know, you, you wouldn't completely am, am, out of ammunition. Yeah. And he, I can imagine, look, I wish, wish I was there in the room listening to him. He probably looked at the officers and said, well, you know, I'm not going to leave the guns completely dry. You know, they need to have some ammunition for me to go back and come back. In the meantime, if they had to fire some ammunition, you know, the time I'm away, you know, which is, you know, good planning. Anyway, he makes it back. He says, uh, I ran, then I crawled. When I get to the clearings, I run, and in the jungle, I crawl. So he makes it back to an ammo point. And Bassalon was a very strong fella um, all the, <clears throat> in all accounts. So I would imagine he wouldn't grab belts of ammunition. He would have grabbed boxes of ammunition because it was thick jungle, and it's all swampy to this day. It's very swampy and mud everywhere. So he's not going to drag ammunition belts through the mud. He didn't go that much detail to say they were in boxes or not. I imagine knowing what I did because you know, I was a heavy machine gunner in the Marines for a number of years. So, you know, it makes sense. You're going to grab some ammo. Those days there were boxes or ammo cans. I think, yeah, a box full of cans. Anyway, he's grabbed a few of them. He's, he's making his way back. But what was amazing, he couldn't go – when he went to get the ammunition, he didn't run straight behind. He ran out into the – in front of his bunker – down the length of the other bunkers, you got to remember this. You know, he he runs out where the Japanese are, and then he's running across a few four or five other bunkers, the Marine bunkers, fire machine guns and rifles, and, and makes his way back through the line because he, he thought it was more dangerous just running straight behind his bunker. Yeah. This is crazy, and <clears throat> he just runs out in front and runs down and gets his ammunition and he makes his way back, and. He was gone about 30 minutes. That's what he told the officer. I was gone about 30 minutes. Anyway, he gets his gun back up and running. 
And um, at one stage, the bodies started piling up on the fence. They wasn't on top of each other, falling on the fence. And there was actually a Japanese machine gun behind the bodies firing at them. So he didn't say he didn't run out and move the bodies. Um, but using a bit of my knowledge and common sense and, and thinking about what a machine gun platoon sergeant would do, he's not going to run out by, him, you know, by himself, knowing there's Japanese right there, dead and wounded, without any you know, support. And pull bodies off of thing. What he did say in his statement, he moved his his gun he had on the ground. He moved it around quite a bit. Because mm-hmm. you know, why would you move a gun around to get clear fields of fire? Yeah, exactly. And now he wasn't going to order, and he's not going to order his men. Hey, private so and so, private so and so, run out there and move those bodies. Yeah. When there's hundreds of Japanese running at him right there and bullets going everywhere, he's not going to do that. He's not going to risk his men to do that. It just doesn't make tactical sense. You know, you move your gun around. Rounds so and get a better uh, shooting position, which he said he did, which makes sense. Um, so throughout the night, he's done that, and they're basically stopping those Japanese because that was one of the main avenues of approach. That sector three trail, right? If the Japanese would have pushed through that trail. They could have got on the fighter field one, which was an auxiliary trail to Henderson. They could have pushed through and got that. So, um, he was able to stop them mainly by his. Uh, his um work along with those machine guns some of the some of the stories you hear about Barcelona, you know he was and then then when the morning time came puller walks around looks at him and only looks looks at what he's done and only says two or three words is uh, well done or good job he said good job All right. well puller recommended him for the put him in for the metal but <clears throat> that's that's good i guess a guy like puller he's our good job good job that means good you're doing quite well. He's not going to like jump up and pat him on the back and you know give him a cigar or anything. But Barcelona apparently was barefooted most of the time, which makes a lot of sense too because those thick jungle, you'll see in my video, it's just mud. And the locals get around with no shoes too to get better grip. And those boondockers that the Marines were issued, the shoes wasn't the, the best thing for running around once they get some mud in the, in the treads. So instead of slipping and sliding around, Barcelona threw his shoes off and he was running around barefooted which would get more traction, which makes a lot, a lot of sense. Yeah. And I wouldn't do it, but you know, once again, desperate times cost a desperate measure. Um, so what he did then the, at the end of the day, they, they at that night, they'd moved some of the, the third battalion and 164th army guys. They dropped them in and holds with the Marines, which is a great combination to fill the line. And then the next day when the, the smoke cleared, so to speak, um, Bachelon said there was 38 dead Japanese between him and the wire. Apparently, there was hundreds of Japanese on the other side of the wire dead. Um, Bassan didn't fight by himself. You hear some accounts he was there alone. He held the line for three days, you know, with a machete and a knife under, you know, no food. Some of that private, as a private Nash, he, he once again, they asked him, I think he was a private around there, and he just said, Yeah, you know, this guy's a legend, you know. <clears throat> Reminds me of the, um, the Alvin York movie, you know, with Gary Cooper. There's a there's a scene in there where they're marching, show the troops, U.S. troops are marching in line, and the first guy says, "Oh, you know, Alvin York captured you know 130 Germans," and then the word just gets pushed down the line of yeah, marching yeah, troops, yeah. and by the last guy, he's he turns around to tell someone, no one there, and he goes, "You know, you know, York's captured the 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 Kaiser," and you know, and, and so you can see how things get broken. You know, legends, yeah, 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 legends get built up. So, no, and that next day, they moved Bachelon and the rest of the guys up on the ridge. 
And so the next night, the Japanese attacked in a, in, in a larger scale attack against the army and, and some of the Marines at, at, at Coffin Corner, which is a, you know, a few hundred yards down the line. And they really got that smashed there. But Barcelona really wasn't involved in any of that on that second night. So this is now the 24th and 25th of October that Barcelona earned his medal. So mainly 25th, he did most of his, his work. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, he held the line. Him and his in that 37 millimeter gun, the other Marines around him held that line. And they got Navy crosses and things, too. They got decorated. So he wasn't there by himself. You know, there's Marines in other bunkers left and right. There was one Marine sergeant, another platoon sergeant, who who died in place, and he was doing a machine gun too, and he actually died in the one seven and a number of bunkers down from, you know, holding off. But but Baslon held that vital sector three trail. So if they would have went through that sector three trail, it would have made a bit of a difference. They would have Marines would have been in a in a hurt locker, so to speak. And then once again, Baslon, um, they brought him back. Uh, and Barcelona says when they interviewed and they said, what was your probably the, the best time or the best, most memorable time you had on Guadalcanal? Wasn't it that that, that um, incident? He said it was two weeks later at Balakoli Point where they went after the Japanese. He mentions that. So it's just amazing. But anyway, when they left, they did their arrest and declaration um, in Australia. And that's where Barcelona, there's a famous photo of him um Mitchell Page, Edson, you know, I think I've seen it to you, and Vandegrift all standing on a, on a um, oval in, in Melcom, uh, Mel, in Melbourne, Balmoral Oval. If you go there to the state, there's a plaque there. And you notice three, uh, three of them are wearing Australian Army uniform tops. Vandegrift's wearing a green top, and the other three, because they didn't have any uniforms when they came out of Guadalcanal. So they issued the Australian Army. Look at it, you see the jackets a bit different. They're Australian Army jackets. In the first Marine division, and they put their famous patch on the on the left sleeve. Hmm. But then, once, like I said, the start of the, the episode, um, he um, he was pulled out of Australia and sent on a, a war bonds tour against his own will. I mean, obviously he enjoyed it at the very beginning, but then I think he got tired of it living the the Hollywood because he was he was a basically rock star status. He was very uh, high celebrity, and um. And to his credit, too, and that's another thing about what what the character of Barcelona, you know, he didn't have to go back, and um, they were very reluctant to send a Medal of Honor, especially a hero, back into combat. Yeah, but of he, course. Just like in this series, you know, you went to Vandegrift at that stage, his old boss who became a commandant of the Marine Corps by that stage and, and made a personal uh, appeal and plea. And being Marines, you know, this Marine wants to fight and wants to be with his men. And you can see... There's no doubt that when he landed on, on February 19th, on the, the first day of Iwo Jima, you know, Barcelona was seen to be everywhere, you know, getting his guys up because there were green troops, a lot of those guys, and he was a platoon sergeant, the inner gunnery sergeant. So someone had to get these guys off the beach and leave from the front, and he did. He apparently took out a bunker and earned a Navy Cross. He was the only enlisted Marine to earn a, a Navy Cross, which is the second highest award the U.S. gives and, and the Medal of Honor. He wasn't the only Marine, because there, there was a lot of Marine officers that got it, but yeah, he was the only Marine. At least, and then he obviously died young and became a legend, the legend of Manila John. Mm -hmm. so he's probably the most famous Medal of Honor earner in, in Guadalcanal. So it brings us to... Um, mentioned Page, then, is next. Yeah, so Mitchell Page, Mitchell Page, interesting story. I mean, <clears throat> personally, of all the research I've done, 
the most amazing feat of any any one person on Medal of Honor, I think, in my opinion, is Mitchell Page on Guadalcanal. So Mitchell Page did hold a ridge by himself. Mitchell Page did fire a machine gun from the hip. He actually led a counterattack charge with a machine gun. Um, and I think, personally, he's overshadowed by Barcelona for a number of reasons. Um, so Page was in 2-7. And I mentioned before, they moved him away and put him up on the ridge, color ridge. Okay. So not a 25th and 26th. They moved him up there. Now, Page, Page had been in since I think 30, 1934 in the Marine Corps, 36, 36, I think. He was a he was an old Corps Marine. I mean, he'd been to China. He'd been around a bit. He was a Marine perfect. He'd been a, a machine gunner for like 10 years. He was like you know, old Corps, old school. Well, not 10 years, he'd been a machine gunner for a number. I think he I think he might have come in 34. He's he's got a great book. It's called um, I got it here, a Marine named Mitch. You know, uh, was he in Shanghai when he was in China? I don't know. If you ever see this, get this book here. I'm probably glare. Okay. It's called A Marine Named Mitch. Hmm. And that's his, his, his autobiography. I have to have a read. He's definitely in China. And he learned how to, he learned, you know, learned how the Chinese, um, or sorry, how the Japanese, he could recognize the Japanese language and things like that and in and, and some of their their ways. And he um, he picked him up one night. Well, the night of the he earned his medal. No, sorry, but he um he was pretty innovative. I mean, he was a Serbian of Serbian descent. Him and a, a Marine officer had their heavy machine guns. They wanted to make them lighter and fire faster. So what they did with their boats, they cut holes in their boats to make them lighter. And they had rapid fire machine rapid rapid fire heavy machine guns. They were they were known for their little innovative things and he had a well, well trained uh, machine gun platoon. So him is um painting his um rapid fire guns. So they moved him in um, the day before up on that ridge. And he said when they moved him in, and if you if you go to our Mitchell Page video, they basically put his guns on a knoll kind of out in front of the whole line. He had two infantry companies on support, but he was on a knoll. So he had to put his his guns in at night. He said to place them. He said, I reached my hand out and I could feel like a, a, a sheer drop-off. And if you go to that location today, you see a sheer drop-off. And, and then the Japanese tried to attack that night. He could hear him. He said, I recognize that's uh, their voices. It's just, I recognize them from China. And Mitchell Page was like an all, all star, all Marine baseball pitcher. You know, the guy that throws the ball, a bowler for any of my Australian or English audiences in cricket. Um, but Page got frustrated because he had his sleeve, long sleeves. He couldn't throw as good because he was laying on the ground. So he said, we just threw grenades and we hear him screaming and we knew they were trying to infiltrate us. So the next day, he said it took him two hours. He took his knife and he cut his sleeves out of his, his shirt <laughs> so he could throw throw a grenade faster. And um, I actually seen a, I think there's a drawing by one of the Marine historians and it shows Paige running down. I'm going to send it to you. He's running down the hill. I think his sleeves are cut out. <clears throat> there's one, there's one, there's a painting of him with his sleeves cut out. Because Paige only died in about 2003. So uh, yeah. wow. one of my friends was there with him when he revisited Guadalcanal a couple of times and walked him through things. So, and he's on a, he's been on documentaries telling his story. So it was quite a good story. And he was a real big advocate later in years about um, fake Medal of Honors going after the people who said they had fake Medal of Honors. He, yeah, he was really, as you can imagine, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. went after those guys. 
But Paige, he set his guns up. Once again, he had he had a number of machine guns like Bassalon. He had um, four heavy machine guns. They set them up. So when the Japanese attacked, um, the hit Paige is is no quite hard. Um, a, a number of his, his crews was killed and wounded, and they beat back the first Japanese attack. So the Japanese attacked again, and they overran his machine guns and just left Paige basically by himself with another guy. And he, he got his wounded out, and Paige was firing machine guns. And at one stage, Paige was running back and forth from machine gun to machine gun, trying to keep up the fire. There's no one other Marines around him. Um, Company Elf was to his, his left flank. They started moving back. He got so mad at them, he grabbed a rifle and started firing at them because he was so pissed off, he said. And he, 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 he remained there, still firing his guns. He managed to get uh, a couple of other managed to get another gun and a couple other Marines from another company. He ran and got them. So they're there all firing. And at one stage, the Japanese had infiltrated behind him. And you can see it when you go there. It's hard to describe. And um, where the battalion command post was. So Page turned his gun around. He could see him on one side of the hill and he started firing at him. And, and, and the Marines in the command post thought the Japanese had killed Paige and all his men was using the, the uh, machine guns against them because the rounds were coming over their head. Hmm. The next day, they found a number of those Japanese with bullet holes in their in their back of their legs and in their heels and their bottom of their feet when they were laying on the hill and Paige is shooting at them and hit them and, hit them and grazing fire. <clears throat> and at one stage, Paige was by himself on that knoll and all the Japanese fire was coming at him because he was the only active machine gun still firing. So obviously... In a firefight like that, you want to take out the rapid fire machine gun, suppress their fire. <clears throat> That's the way you do it. So they were getting attention of all the fire. Machine guns generally get attention of, of enemy fire. So he's firing away, firing away best he can. Bullets, bullets are nicking him too. Um and during all this, he's trying to get reinforcements. He's got a few, he's he's defeated the guys behind him. Um, and then Major Cooley, which is the um, acting battalion commander, led a counterattack with some of his um, headquarters staff, uh, some of the cooks and clerks and all that. And they, about 25 guys started pushing over the hill. Um, at one stage, right, right before that, at one stage, one of the, the Marine machine guns were unmanned. And it was a race. He seen the Japanese looking at it, and he seen it, and they both started running to it. He managed to get to the gun before the Japanese swung around and killed the Japanese. Wow. And if you ever just Google Mitchell Page on the YouTube or something, he tells a story about there was a Japanese Nambu machine gunner shooting at him, and he's trying to pinpoint him. We got him like a machine gun fight. He says, I'm firing at him, and then at one stage I raised up, and I just felt like, he says, like a, a whoosh underneath my chin. He said that was the the, the burst of bullets. That if I'd been down, they would have got me in the head. It just I had to raise that right time and just went straight underneath me. God. It's amazing to hear his story. And then when when the major Cooley was counterattacking the Marines, he's seen it. He yells over to his right for the G Company Marines, follow me. He picks the machine gun up, cradles it in arms, leads to, and it's a steep hill. He leads to the counterattack down the hill, carrying it, carrying his heavy machine gun, probably about 40, 50 pounds, a dead weight, and he's firing it. And he yells out something. He's something, but he yells out something in Japanese because he knew a few Japanese words. Basically, says "stand up" or something like that, or "let's go." 
He says, another one popped up out of the bush. He says, and I start shooting at him. He says, one Japanese officer come at me with his sword. And he says, I, you know, he got within five or six uh, yards from him before he could cut him down with a machine gun. And then once they knocked those Japanese out, then the Japanese attack was over. Yeah. And they stopped at the bottom of the hill. And he said, look, he had a, a giant blister from his uh, wrist to his top of his shoulder with his crazy like machine gun because he got some – one of the corpsmen had to come and put this special uh, uh, salve on it. Yeah, if you ever get that book, it's a great book to read. Great book to read because at one stage they were going to they were going to shoot a Marine captain if he came back the next day because he was there the day before with field glasses looking at Japanese. He said, you know, don't do that, don't do that. And he basically told him, you know, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Then he walks away. Then some Japanese mortars around. He killed one of his friends. And he said that if that captain ever showed back up, he wouldn't, you know, he probably wouldn't live. <laughs> and um, but yeah, Paige. Now, why was Paige not as well known? Okay, there's I think a couple of number of reasons. Paige received a battlefield commission for this. Came a lieutenant. He was a a married man by the time, but an older fellow received a battlefield commission. Mm-hmm. His medal of honor was one day later than Barcelona. When they went back to um, Australia, Barcelona's the only enlisted marine there. The only enlisted single Marine there. Great poster for war bonds. Yeah. I think that was the reason why he was overshadowed because Paige would have made good, good war bonds, man. I'm not saying, I'm not comparing, you know, both of them. Both of them, don't get me wrong, more than equal and did amazing feats. But the more you research in the uh, page, and it's backed by a lot of, you know, he, he did some quite a, he did hold a ridge by himself. Um, Mitchell Page did. So, yeah, if you go into my video there about Mitchell Page, you'll see the the area where he earned it, and you can see how that no, he's so far in front of the line mm-hmm. with no support. And it's just it's quite amazing what he had to do. Um, who's next? This guy, I don't know, honest. Uh, Casamento. I don't know this guy mm-hmm. too well. Yep, that's why. <clears throat> Casamento. Now, Casamento... Anthony Casamento, he's a corporal in the 1st Battalion, 5th Marine. That was my old unit, too. Not not back then, but later in years. <clears throat> so, Casamento earned his medal 1980 or 81. I'll double check. Says the thing. Okay. So, he earned it post-war. That's probably going to know a lot about him. Um, and he was a corporal. And at the time, your Medal of Honor... Uh, recommendation had to be recommended by an officer. So his action, there was no one left around. They're all dead and wounded. And years later, there were a few of the wounded came back who were apparently dead. And another officer who, who came through there later says, yeah, I've seen the aftermath. But then they did the two main witnesses who were two enlisted Marines said, I was there when it was happening. This man's amazing. You know? And it was a big, long campaign to get uh, him the medal after all these years. And it, it finally uh, took those two witnesses or three witnesses. <clears throat> so I've done a lot of research on him. I've, I've got all the witness statements. Um, his was one of those positions that has been lost to history. No one, no one really knew about him much and they didn't know where it occurred. They just saw it happened somewhere in here. It's one of those fights that is kind of gets left off in the Guadalcanal campaign. You know, there's, there's those out there who think Guadalcanal campaign was all Marines. You know, it was Alligator Creek, Bloody Ridge, Few battle Matanico and, yeah. and it ended. Um, there was a lot of fights after that. You know, the main fighting in Guadalcanal campaign 
occurred around the Matanikau River in the Point Cruz area. That was the, the side of the longest sustained and most intense fighting of the campaign. Um, yes, you had Bloody Ridge, but that was only two days, three days, and he had Coffin Corner, which is a lot, you know, probably that was the side of the largest Japanese attack, but it only happened over two days. But the, these other places have months, months and months of intense combat, especially the Point Cruise line. I mean, the, the Marines and the Army held that in the line against the Japanese from uh, November to January. That's around Point Cruise. And that's basically the same area where the uh, Monroe Medal of Honor uh, occurred. And this is where these tourist hotels are. Um, <clears throat> so Casamento on the 1st of November, Vandegrift um, said, look, we want to wipe these Japanese out away from the Tanakau. You know, they've just got uh, severely defeated on their last October 26th, 27th offensive. So it's time to do a counterattack. This might be our opportunity to push them back. <clears throat> so on the 1st of November, uh, they put three engineer bridges across the um, the Matanikau, and they were going to do an advance uh, of about 2,000 yards with the 5th Marine Regiment, supported by some of the 2nd Marines Regiment that brought over to Tulagi, some fresh troops. Then they were going to push away the Kukumbona. The Kukumbona from Matanikau is probably about six, five, six miles. They're going to push all the way to the Kukumbona, really push the Japanese away from Matanikau. That was their, their plan. So started out, and they hit that line. You'll see um, the first time Fifth Marines. They advanced over Hill Seventy Eight, um, that area which is now where the Central Market is and the Parliament House. They made it to their um, first objective line, and the Japanese had a natural choke point there on those ravines um, and well camouflaged bunkers. Well, the well the Marines and Army. The U.S. like to build their defenses up high. The Japanese like to defend, build their defenses down low. They love reverse reverse slope positions, especially in those ravines. And then they used to put the bunker straight in the bottom of the ravine in like an infilating fire. <clears throat> so pretty smart way they did it. Um, so they ran into the first time 5th Marines, which Casamento was part of. Casamento was moving up on the ridge at Hill 78 with machine guns. Right. They were supposed to set up uh, a base of fire. So he set his base of fire up. One of the platoon C company was moving through, and they basically got ambushed. They they said they walked straight up on the, the Japanese bunkers, and they, they got hit pretty hard, and they lost a lot of guys very quick. So, And also, Casamento, they were on a point there, and they started getting hit um, very hard with mortar and machine gun fire. So he was losing guys left and right in his, his machine gun squad. But what he was able to do – um, <clears throat> he was involved um, he laid down a lot of suppressive fire some of the Japanese was trying to infiltrate the flank and he, he killed those Japanese trying to flank and he laid enough suppressive fire down that they were able to evacuate a lot of the um, the wounded um, and and to hold them off he was wounded multiple times Casamento still managed machine gun everybody in his squad was killed and wounded Um the Marines were able to move back. In fact, unfortunately, there's still 23 Marines from that battalion still missing to this day, and they had to give them battlefield barrels, and they're still missing to this day. Probably never be found because it was all it's all modernized now, built over. So we looked for them. We were there. We're still looking for them. But anyway, <clears throat> B companies come up to relieve C. He was in C company, so B companies moving through. They were in company reserve, and their officer so they walked up. 
he said, and they were just, all the Marines were dead and wounded, just covered with blood. And he could see one moving, covering head to toe with blood, and it was Kazimato. And he thought he was dead. And I think Kazimato was basically saying, I'm not a Japanese, don't kill me, don't shoot me. And he said, oh, we're not. Man. You know? And they were in to the, the evacuate him. They thought he was going to die, but he ended up living. And then he was, he, he was nominated um, for a, a couple of medals. But um, at the time, there was talk about the Medal of Honor and the Navy Cross. I don't I have to go back and do my research. I don't think he actually received a Navy Cross. I think he received a lesser medal, Valor Medal. It was kind of just, okay. And he didn't really push it. You know, he was suffering from war wounds. And I've been, uh, I think later in life, he started mentioning it to people and people took up the call. And they said, this isn't right. You've done, you know, we have witnesses now. It said, you did something right. You deserve this. Mm-hmm. So he was um, awarded the Medal of Honor by President Carter. I know it was by Carter. I'm pretty sure it's 1980. And then he died, he, uh, died a number of years after that. But I've located his position um, from the uh, unit diaries and the message logs and uh, the witness statements. And yeah, uh, and then you walk the ground and look and see it hadn't changed. And you go, well, this is where you'd put a machine gun. And it just makes sense of where it exactly was. So I can't say the exact spot. I can probably put it within. Yeah, I don't know, five, five meters, five or 10 meters at the most. Maybe between him and another machine gun. So, yeah, he, that was the first of November. <clears throat> and that led up the, the Marines actually in the Army at that stage pushed 164th. They pushed on um, quite a bit. And then they had to redraw them because the Battle of Coley Point, which on the east, they thought the, uh, the, the Japanese were landing a, a fresh unit. And that was some of the Japanese. It was from left over the two, the two thirtieth regiment of Soji. Yeah, they were there, gone right by, and yeah, and they had radio equipment, and yeah, and they got massacred. And then the second, yeah, and they escaped a bit, and they did the the, the fight back, and then that's when they put the second Raider battalion after them. They, you know, the long patrol. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, so that's Casimetto, Anthony Casimetto, and brings you up a good point. All the Marine enlisted, or in fact, all the enlisted Medal of Honors earned on land or earned by machine gunners yeah. just showed the defensive nature of the fight so we're about to go the next one we're bringing in the next one is going to talk about the u.s army and they were two of those guys were machine gunners so you had page batsalon casameto and, and the next two army um gentlemen we're going to speak, speak about well are we going to do uh, three of them or just two because we got david we'll speak we'll, we'll speak all three okay davis fournier Actually, it's all Fournier. Sorry, that's another French name. How would you pronounce it, America? <clears throat> that's an interesting one because I heard anyone ever pronounce it. I'd say Fournier. Fournier. Okay. Fournier and Hall. Yeah, I'd say Fournier because I, I knew of uh, some guys named Fournier, and that's how they, they pronounce it. So I'm just going to limb. Hopefully, I apologize to his family if that's not correct. Just please let us know. Yeah, that's, um, that's, like I said to you, it, it, that when it comes to America and it comes to these last names, if they're French or German, whatever, it's basically how the family pronounces it and that's how you go by it i'm, I'm shocked sometimes when i i find the pronunciations of some names yeah <laughs> yeah i know you do your best don't you yeah yeah so this leads us up <clears throat> we'll, we'll cover three medal of honors in this one mm-hmm. so this is the u.s army the three u.s army medal of honors uh, charles davis which was a, a captain mm-hmm. and you had um fournier and hall which were corporal and a sergeant. They call them technical at the time. 
So it's Lewis Hall and um, what's what's Fournier's first name? Sorry, I'm just out of mind blank. Oh, I have Fournier. William. William G. Yeah, William. Yeah, I should. I'm just got the information overload right now. All right, you, <laughs> so Fournier Hall. How much you can remember? It's it's you're outstanding at this. Uh, it's just a um, an history geek. Um. <laughs> Yeah, but my, my wife asked me, uh, have you done this? I go, what? <laughs> I don't remember you ever saying that. Um, <laughs> selective. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. Army has been brought in. The, the 164th Regiment first arrived on October the 13th. The night of the battleship to bombardment, you know, welcome to the Guadalcanal. So they were the, the first uh, Army unit, National Guard unit of the Marical Division to land, and then the rest of the division landed. So when the 1st Marine Division left in December and January, they were replaced by the 25th Infantry Division, which was a, a pre-war regular unit. <clears throat> um, they were Hawaii-based. I mean, they actually had seen some combat, if you count Pearl Harbor as combat, because they're Schofield Barracks, you know, you know all these Pearl Harbor movies, From Here to Eternity, all the other movies that showed the U.S. Army. They're generally yeah. 25th Infantry Division, you know, they're the, they're the guys. In fact, the guy who wrote From Here to Eternity and The Thin Red Line, James Jones, was a pre-war uh, corporal at the time in the 25th Infantry Division. It was in the 27th Regiment of the 25th. So that's, he wrote both of those. You know, from here to eternity, it talks about the pre-war and the thin red line is the war. And it follows the fictitious army unit, which in reality is the 25th Infantry. And I'll go a little more in that when I talk about Charles Davis. And um, I'll, I'll mention Davis now. I'll go into Davis first. So, 25th Infantry Division, 27th Regiment. So at the time, the U.S. Army under General Patch, Alexander Patch had taken command over from Vandegrift, and they'd formed the core units that side, at that stage because he had elements of the 2nd Marine Division there. He had Americal Division, so he had, and, he had, and the 25th Division. So he had three divisions, so they formed the core, the 14th Corps. And his Major General Patch took command of the 14th Corps. So Mount Austin was a large... Uh, mountain, you'll see it's on the left flank. So it overlooks Henderson Field and overlooks whole area. Um, during the campaign, the Marines, that wasn't their main objective. Their main objective was securing Henderson. Mm -hmm. So they, they knew Japanese were up there, so they just left them alone. So Vandegrift wanted, or sorry, Patch wanted to do a major offensive all the way to the, the west coast, uh, northwest coast of Guadalcanal to push the Japanese off since he had a lot of fresh troops. But he knew that that Mount Austin would um, threaten his flank. And also, too, they were getting some Japanese infiltrators coming through and, and um, blowing up planes and causing mayhem at Henderson and Fighter 2, which is a new, newly established um, fighter field, which is now the golf course, if you ever go to Haniara. Um, so he wanted to, to, to get rid of it. So in December, he sent the 132nd, a brand-new um, recently arrived unit, 132nd of the American Division, you know, go, go thought there was only a couple of companies Japanese, but what they ran into was the place called the Gifu, which is the, probably the most highly fortified area on Guadalcanal during the whole campaign. Cause yeah. the Japanese at that stage had dug in there and said, let's just wait for reinforcements. And um, I've got some episodes on the Gifu alone. That was a heavy fight lasted over a month. <clears throat> but anyway, when the 25th arrived, the only way the Gifu was getting resupplied was across the Matanikau on those slopes. Because where the Gifu is, it's like horseshoe shaped, and it's a whole cliff that goes straight down to the river. Yeah. 
the Japanese were getting the reinforcement supply up through them cliffs and up through them some tracks. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to reduce the Gifu. And the Gifu was a, a an area that the Japanese had named due to the area where a lot of these troops had came from in Japan. But that stronghold, they wanted to reduce it. Before they could reduce it, they had to cut off the Japanese flank. So this freshly landed unit of the 25th Division, their first task of the 27th Regiment was to take a place called the Galloping Horse, a series of, of, of hills and ridges. They call it the Galloping Horse, and even to this day, if you go on Google, <clears throat> but if you take a map and you flip it upside down, it looks like a horse is galloping. And then beside it, there's a series of hills called the Seahorse, and it looks like a seahorse. We'll talk about the seahorse with these other two in a minute. So the 27th Regiment was given a task of reducing those Japanese because the Japanese had a series of um, fortifications on some hills there, but hill 53, 52, um, 51. So they started out on the, the, the 10th of January on a, a major assault. <clears throat> so they, if you if you look at my video, the um, Charles Davis Medal of Honor, and that, that's probably the most perfectly reserved battlefield on Guadalcanal because just it, it, it's hard to get to. It really kicks your ass to get up there too and, and kick these guys' butts too when they got up there. Um, so the 3rd Battalion of the 27th made their attacks over two days and due to a number of factors, one of the f- biggest factors is lack of water. They only took one canteen of water and they got up on slopes that couldn't get resupplied. And it's a good study on how water will decimate or will stop an attack or lack of water. <clears throat> so they got up there and they got held down and right before the last ridge. Um, so Charles Davis was an executive officer of the second battalion. Or what, staff officer, not executive officer, excuse me. He was a staff officer of the second battalion. So the third battalion had, had done this attack. So they couldn't attack anymore. And on the 12th of, of January, they brought up the second battalion to relieve them, to push through. So Davis and the rest of them, so they moved up on the, on the 12th. Um, they they got hit by machine gun fire. And the Japanese had a reverse slope position there. And if you go there to this day, you can see it. I, I explained it to him in my video. They couldn't, they couldn't reverse slope is obviously where they put the defenses on the back of a hill, so to speak. And you, you can't engage it directly. If you're on another hill, you can't shoot them directly because they're on the backside of the hill. <clears throat> and when you when you get up to the hill, you're silhouetting yourself, and then they'll engage you at point blank range. So it's 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 a good defense. I mean, you do limit your vision, but you can't you can't put supporting fire on it. <clears throat> so that's what Japanese had there, and they had it fixed where they could fire the place. There's a little gap there when they're trying to move the infantry through. They they could hit them, and the, Marine, and the army couldn't engage them directly. So there's a, a coral edge there. You can see it quite clearly. Davis, uh, Lieutenant Sims, and a couple other Army guys made a, a recon. They, they crawled on the bellies to try to find where these bunker complex was on reverse slope so they could maybe get some mortar firing on them. Yeah, okay. So they get there. They look over, and they could see it, and Sims is looking over to try to find it. He gets shot, shot and killed. And to this day, it's, it's called Sims Ridge, named after that lieutenant. <clears throat> so Davis is pinned down, and he has he starts calling mortar fire because he had radio and you start calling mortar fire, right? And suppresses the, the bunker enough 
And when that time comes, he can move out. He infiltrated out. And then he gave his report. So battalion commander the next day come up with a, uh, a plan of attack. And you see it. You see it clearly on that nice drone shot I've, I've sent you. It's, it's a great drone shot. I had a friend who made a drone shot of it. So the Army had that moved slightly up Sims Ridge and had fixed, had one company there. So they told Davis and four other men what they were going to do. They were going to come up on the west side, right, with a whistle and then a hand grenade and stuff. And they were going to get within sight of those bunker complex. They were going to start throwing hand grenades, throwing smoke, and try to distract that bunker. In the meantime, the battalion commander with another company was on that ledge, Carl Ledge. And as soon as he started blowing the whistle, Davis blowed the whistle, the commander was company commander, the battalion commander, the company is going to attack over <clears throat> and try to take out that bunker. So Davis and his four men crawled up. And it's quite amazing, this area. Um, you can still see the two bunker complexes. Um, they got within 10 yards of it. Um, the first time I went there, was was very amazing. I've never had an experience like this before. I mean, it wasn't a spiritual experience, anything like that. I mean, but I'm laying there, and they just did a. The air had been burned. Sometimes the locals burn the areas, put gardens in, and things. It's great when they burn it. You can still see relics and fox holes on top of the ground. And I'm reading the accounts, and I did everything. I said, "Oh, he was in ten yards." And I worked out ten yards. You can still see the the holes where the coconut where the log bunkers were, and they're no longer there, but the, the depression's in the ground. Mm -hmm. So it worked out 10 yards, and I worked out, okay, if I was going to crawl here, what cover would I use? And me and my friend was there. We, 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 this is where I would go. And I'm laying there. I said, this is about 10 yards. I said, okay, this position where Davis and his men started throwing the hand grenades. And I'm looking down to my right, and there's pull pins from hand grenade laying on the ground. Incredible. And this area... You know, Guadalcanal became a major logistical and training base after the campaign. This area, what isn't on any of the training, is so far away. It's, no other fighting was done there after this day. Uh, no training had ever been done there. So I thought in my head, I can't prove 100%, but those are probably him and his guys' pull pins. Um, but something tells me that there, there today. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a war relics accent on Guadalcanal, but something tells me those are not those pool pins probably didn't. They're not there today. I don't know. Last time I went up there, they weren't there. So I don't know what happened to them. just say it, say that. Um, so that was quite amazing. Quite amazing. Um, so they threw a number of grenades to distract. Well, I think in the heat of the moment, he's jumped up in his men and they just attacked the bunkers themselves. So Davis attacked the bunker. He had an M1 Grand. He started firing some rounds. He had a stoppage. He put his, his I guess he slung his weapon, or I don't know exactly what happened. Hopefully he didn't throw it to the ground. Might have, but he, he transitioned to his pistol and he started firing. And him and his three guys took out those bunkers. Him, he's still blowing a whistle. And at that stage, the rest of the, <clears throat> the company jumped up and the momentum was, was there and they attacked up the hill and they took the ridge. This was all in view of uh, a famous... Um, very later famous corps commander in Europe, but um, Lightning Joe Collins or Joe Collins was a lieutenant general in um, in Europe, but he was a, the commanding general of the 25th Division. He was only about 300 yards away watching it. He was on Exton's Ridge with the famous coast watcher, Martin Clemens. Mm -hmm. So Martin Clemens, you know, <clears throat> he tells a, another story too 
about he even gives an he gives an account to. At one stage, the major general was calling in Mortifier himself. He was on the radio calling Mortifier. He was he was right at, at it. But he's watched it. In fact, the whole division could see it because he was silhouetted up on the skyline when all this occurred, and when Davis earned it. And anyway, uh, the division commander put him in for the medal. Um, now Davis uh, lived through the war. He later became a battalion commander, I think. Um, got promoted to major. I mean, end of war as a colonel, retired as a colonel, but he lived through the war. Um, now, a side note: when I mentioned James Jones, who wrote <clears throat> "Thin Red Line," "Thin Red Line," it was based on his. He was in the second battalion. He was actually wounded on galloping horse, a mortar fragment, mortar shell. Um, so, if you read the "Thin Red Line," it's a fictional book, but I think instead of the galloping horse, he calls it galloping elephant. And, you know, instead of this name, he uses this name, but it's the same thing. And in the movie, there's been two movies made, The Thin Red Line. The second one, the most modern one, um, the actor, John Cusack. Cusack, His actions in the bunker scenes where he's him and his other guys taking the bunkers out, he blows a whistle. He's a captain. Yeah. Maybe a captain, lieutenant. Anyway, that's loosely based on Charles Davis. Hmm. So, um, I wouldn't see the whole movie Thin Red Line because it gets, to my opinion, it gets a bit slow. I mean, the, the fight scenes, the bunker scenes, especially those taking out the bunker scenes are quite realistic. Um, they filmed parts of the Thin Red Line on Guadalcanal, uh, but those bunker scenes and all that's filmed in, in Australia. But if you look at my videos and look at that one, the, the terrain looks all spot on with the, the kunai grass and the ridges, open barren ridges. It's, it's, they did that very well and how they took out those bunkers. But yeah, if you if you see that that bunker scene is based on Charles Davis's um, um, actions. So at the same time, Charles Davis was earning his Medal of Honor. Um, the same day, uh, Lewis and Fournier, two machine guns. Uh, I think it was the M Company, which is a machine gun or heavy heavy company. <clears throat> the 35th Regiment, which is yeah. another regiment, the 25th. They were supposed to, once again, all the plan was to cut off the Gifford Mount Austin. They were moving behind it to take out a place called the Seahorse, which is uh, two hills. And they're like a seahorse. And the 35th was given the task of taking that out. The 27th was given the task of taking the galloping horse ridges out. And then once they took both those ridges out, then the other elements of the 35th would, would reduce the Gifu. The, the Gifu was cut off and then they reduced it. They hit artillery fire and they reduced it. But on the way to the um, – the seahorse then they attack. If you go there to this day, the Matanical branches off and there's deep ravines. Um, a lot of, and it's real thick jungle and terrain. So they were having a hard time trying to move through jungle trails. Japanese had a camp down in Matanical because once again they were supporting the guys at the Gifu. Um they're crossing a stream near the water hole. There's not a lot of a lot of much information on Fournier Hall, unfortunately. Um, it's a hard area to get to. Um, but there's not a lot written about these guys. I wish there were more, but <clears throat> I think one of them was quite old. He's in his forties. Cause you'll see a lot of the, and, and for a regular army unit, that's, that's, it's quite amazing. Some of the national guard units, the, the soldiers are a bit older. Um, I think the average age of a, uh, a U.S. army unit was 26 and average age of a, of a, of a Marine and a Marine unit was 19 in World War II. There's an old joke about the, you know, the Sea Beach Construction Battalion that, you know, don't don't make 
the final one because it could be a Marine's dad, something like that they were saying. It's quite funny. Um, but they were moving through to to um, make their first attack up the, the seahorse. <clears throat> Fournier and Hall were machine gunners, so they were covering the flank um, of this movement. And the Japanese had done a, a counterattack down the, the ravine to hit the, the company in the flank, the very exposed flank. I don't think the company actually had covered that flank like they should have. Anyway, it was in a very exposed position when they were moving through. So one of the machine gunners was shot and killed. So Fournier Hall took it upon themselves <clears throat> to grab their machine gun, a light machine gun, with a tripod. And it was the, the terrain was so steep that set the machine gun up, they couldn't depress it, um, elevate it enough to get down to, to fire. So one of them picked the, the tripod up and held it and leaned forward, and the other one could manipulate the machine gun. And they fired it basically like that. So they're holding it and firing it together, working as a crew. They fired back and forth, back and forth, and it stopped that Japanese counterattack cold in its tracks, which if the Japanese would be able to hit, <clears throat> they would have um, definitely stopped the, the Army's uh, attack at that stage, and they would have probably killed and wounded a lot of the Army um, guys in that company because they would hit them in the, in the rear. And they stayed there firing until they were killed in place. But they stopped the Japanese attack with their lives, basically. Mm-hmm. And they're both given a, a posthumously uh, Medal of Honors or awarded the Medal of Honors or earned. I don't know how to say uh, awarded and win. So it's earned, they earned a medal um, by doing that in their actions. I just wish there was more information about these guys because it was quite amazing what they did. But you'll find there's not, there's no, definitely no books. If there is, please, someone let me know if there's a book written about them. But I, I don't know of any. I mean, even in the um, the 25th, I've reached out to the 25th Infantry Division. Really haven't heard much from them, association, but um, it appears to be not much information. Mm. I don't know. I'd love to read the um, the witness reports. That's where you probably get a lot of information, but it might be a bit hard to come by. Um, there's not much in their citations other than what they did. Yeah. Yeah. They gave, they, they basically protected their, their friends, um, with their lives, which is one of the prerequisites, especially for a male of honor, go above and beyond, uh, generally at the cost of your life. Um, in saying that there was, there's 22 male of honors there in the Guadalcanal, uh, six on the air, six at sea, 10 on land, and nine of them. Or posthumously. Posthumously. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Uh, look at the Iwo Jima. That's just unreal. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that, that's the last one, isn't it? Yeah, that's the last one. Oh, the land ones. Uh, I actually was wondering um, because the way that this will probably come out, uh, this will be a one piece for, for my podcast immediately. But I'm going to try and do, like you said, everything that you've given me, make the visuals and cut it up in the episodes. But if you could just tell uh, my audience, you know, a bit about your channel and why they should check you out. Oh, yeah, I have um, I have a YouTube channel called uh, Guadalcanal Walk in a Battlefield. Initially, I started up um, where I basically walked these sites and had my two year deployment there. I wanted to research. And, and drill down on all the stuff I read about Guadalcanal. You know, one, I want to check the facts, and plus I wanted to get um, areas which is kind of off the grid that most people don't go to, especially if you do the the, the tours there, the week-long tours. They'll go to the main points, 
and I've made it for them. And also mainly I made it for the people who would never get a chance to go to Guadalcanal. Um, so they can experience something. And also to capture what Guadalcanal looks like in well, when I was filming from 2018 to 2020. Um, due to COVID and a few other things, uh, I no longer do the work. I'm, I'm not at Guadalcanal. I'm hoping to go back maybe later this year and definitely next year and, and do some more on the ground filming. Now, in the meantime, I've, I've started interviewing other people about Guadalcanal. I mean, next week I'm doing a, um, for the anniversary, the Battle of Sabo Island, which is a naval aspect because I cover mainly land and the three dimensional Guadalcanal campaign is, is unreal with the air, land, and sea. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a guest, uh, Jeff Ballard, he's appearing to talk about the, the naval aspects and, and on the anniversary of the Battle of Sabo Island, which is the worst defeat in US naval history. Um, yeah, it was. So we'll be discussing that. Oh, yeah. And then I also do, you know, a number of other videos. I've done, you know, the Getchy Patrol. I've done uh, Chesty Puller being wounded. Um, I've just uh, got one upcoming, the U.S. Army role on Guadalcanal. I've got the 164. So I'm focusing, <coughs> excuse me, I'm focusing on until I can get back on the ground filming. I'm focusing. So, but my videos, I cover. It's like I'm giving you a tour when I'm walking there. Mm-hmm. It's like me and you, I'm giving you a one-on-one tour. Um, my videos don't have a lot of uh, whistles and bells, so to speak, to it. You know, I call it pure history. Someone, One of my viewers said, this is pure history with no frills. I'm like, yeah, okay. Because when I filmed it, I filmed it on an iPhone 7. Yeah. You know, yeah. I edited it on an iPhone 7, and I uploaded it on Solomon Island Internet. So it was just, it's, 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 you know, it's a miracle even it got put up. Oh yeah. I have an, uh, adjoining Facebook site. It's called same thing. Walking, uh, Guadalcanal walking a battlefield on Facebook. And I update that every two or three days. And I try to include things in there that's never been seen before. In relation to to Guadalcanal. You. Yes. Fresh material. You've found new material about Guadalcanal in all honesty if people were to ask who are some of the experts on the actions of Guadalcanal I think you could be argued to be one of them now um yeah I'm one of the supreme geeks I guess you could say there's a a club of nerds Guadalcanal nerds there's a few of us so yeah we we bounce stuff amongst ourselves Peter Flavin's in Australia too he's like one of the best then and now photoed guys I don't know how many trips he's made yeah. but yeah that's the, my two channels yeah. and hopefully I'll, I'll get some fresh um tour tour stuff there it's been a real yeah. honor to talk to you again i stressed my audience please go check out his stuff you will not find anything like your channel your channel is extremely original it's one of the most interesting channels when it comes to this kind of history on the pacific war i can't think of anybody else who's doing anything like you and uh what can i say i hope everyone checks you out I hope they enjoy it. And if you got any questions too, just especially on YouTube, just send it to me. And, you know, I help out on Facebook, send me a message or whatever. I, I help out quite a few people uh, with their family and vets. And, you know, if they have any um, information that they've had any relatives that served on Guadalcanal, I've, I've helped out quite a number of people. You know, if you give me a, give me a unit, I can tell you where they, where they served and then and now photos. And yeah, I've access to a few records. Yeah, all right. And I will include your Facebook as well in the description so people can find the group. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks again for having me, Craig. It's been a a pleasure. This has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out.